0: Psalm 78 is the answer to Asaph's questions in Psalm 77, 7 to 9. So as you'll see on the slide here, this is one simple way to introduce where not only this message today will go, but also next week's. I believe Psalm 78 exists and is placed here in the Bible to answer the questions that we see in Psalm 77, 7 Seven to nine, which we saw last week. And for those of you that weren't here last week, let me quickly review first with the book of Exodus. So on the screen, you don't need to turn there, is the scripture reading from last Sunday that we had read. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to the thousandth generation. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's Exodus 34, 6-7. Just for the sake of scene that's happening when this passage of Scripture is in the Bible, this is one of the high point moments of God revealing himself to his people. And Moses is hiding in the cleft of the rock, wants to see God's face. But God says, I'll show you my back. I'll give you a glimpse. And that glimpse includes this declaration from God himself. He is saying this. The Lord, the Lord himself is speaking and revealing his character. And it is the most quoted Old Testament text by Old Testament authors, prophets later on. This is a big passage is what I'm getting at. So now, next slide you'll see Psalm 77 from last week or in your Bibles if you just look over. Notice the repetition of key words and phrases. Asaph is asking, well, we have been told and we have memorized Exodus 34, this passage is a big deal, yeah, but we wonder, is it even true? Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be gracious, favorable? Has his, and then there's that key word from Exodus 34, has his chesed, his steadfast, covenant, faithful love. That's a mouthful, but that I think is a good translation of this one Hebrew word, chesed. Steadfast, covenant, faithful love. It's not just about he has warm, lovey-dovey feelings. I think that's true. It's that his love is expressed through his promises, and those promises he is faithful to keep. That's what chesed means. Asaph's asking, I don't think God's keeping his promises anymore. Are his promises at an end for all time? Are they going to last forever? Seems like they've kind of come up short. It's almost as if God has forgotten to be gracious. And in his anger, remember, it says that the Lord is angry in Exodus 34. But what was the key descriptor of his anger? He's slow to anger. Slow. It's literally he has a long nose. It's a beautiful little Hebrew phrase word picture he has a long nose meaning if he gets angry it takes a long time for his nose to get red you ever see someone get angry and their face gets red that's it's it's an expression his low his nose is long he is slow to anger and Asaph's wondering seems like we're just receiving anger from God So those are his questions. I said Psalm 78 is the answer to those questions. And here's the way to answer it. Exodus 34. As you'll see on the next slide, Exodus 34, verse 7, is the rest of what God said to Moses. It didn't stop when he said, I'm loving, I'm slow to anger, I'm faithful to my promises. The Lord kept speaking to Moses and said, but in spite of all of these beautiful, wonderful, glorious coffee cup, artwork verses for Christians. There's this verse, but who will this Lord, who is all of those things, but who will by no means clear the guilty? He will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. I think it's important for you to realize that what's happening in Psalm 30, in Psalm 78 is, God, are you truly those things? And and Psalm 78 is answering, yes, all of those things and more. A God of justice, righteousness, I will punish the guilty. So, let's read Psalm 78 verses 1 to 8 with that background in mind. Especially pay attention to the idea of God wanting generations to be known his ways, his word. A masculine of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them and the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and a rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. And we're going to pause there, and that will end our reading of God's word for today as this introductory section of a rather long and lengthy psalm in Psalm 78. What we want to do is just try and think through this big idea that we have as it relates to the the text of scripture before us. And it's that God has determined that his mercy will exceed and match any of the iniquities and the sins of the fathers. And so if you were to put it in a nutshell, I would say that the sermon should be communicating this. The sins of our fathers are many but the mercy of God the Father is more. Read through the rest of the psalm and you'll find out that what Asaph is wanting his people to see and them to pass on from generation to generation is a warning about the way God will punish sin, but a reaffirmation of God's tender mercy. The sins of our fathers are many, but the mercy of God the Father is more. So what I want to do is I want you to think back on that Exodus passage. And so if we are in the slide, let's look at Exodus 34, 7. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children, to the third and the fourth generation. Notice specifically verse 7. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I'm sure for many of you, when you read that text of scripture, you're thinking, that seems cruel. That seems unjust. Why should a child receive some sort of punishment for their father? This is a complex topic, and we don't have time today to get into all of the nuances that are required. What we do need to see is the comparison between the first half of Exodus 34 and the second half. And what that will be is, look at this picture. To the third and fourth generation. This picture will visualize four generations. Holding hands, passing on from one generation to another. What we might call generational curse, generational sin, uh, generational punishment. You decide which descriptor you think fits best, the biblical narratives. The point is, there is a promise from God that if his people are stiff-necked, stubborn, rebellious. They will receive God's punishment. And that will oftentimes translate down to a next generation of stiff-necked and stubborn people. And so it's not so much that they're being punished for their fathers, it's that the sins of the fathers got passed down to the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren. And God will faithfully judge each generation. But what I said is what we need to do is contrast God's faithfulness in the first half of Exodus 34 with this promise of judgment in the second part. So look back and notice the translation here in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Keeping steadfast love to the thousandth generation. Do you get the difference? Iniquity for three, maybe four generations. Steadfast love for how many A thousand, which is a biblical way of saying forever or a long time or a big stamp of time and era. So take this picture now to contrast it with the last one. There you go. God has determined that there will be the passing on of his covenant faithful promises for generation after generation after generation. His mercy, his grace is more than the iniquity Of the fathers. How glorious is this friends? Don't read the third and fourth generation thing as some sort of cruel vindictive God that just wants to punish. Remember what you just read in verses six and seven. His steadfast love will exceed the generations of sin and iniquity of the fathers. And so therefore I think it is important for us to see this simple but true big idea from Psalm 78 the entire psalm is telling us that the sins of our father are many, but the mercy of God the father is more. So in today's message, I'd like to ask you three questions for the sake of our application of this idea. First, what is your specific generation? Some of you might think, I'm, I'm Gen Z, I'm Gen X, I'm a millennial, I'm a baby boomer. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking you How many of you grew up in a Christian home or heard the gospel from a parent or grandparent? And I would like audience participation, please, loud and proud, raise your hands and please let me know. Do you have Christian parents? Did you grow up going to church? Please start raising the hands. Please hold them up and please let everyone take a look around the room. Just for a moment. I will not make your arm get too tired. It is the vast majority of you, hands down. Meaning... Whether you are first-gen Christian, second-gen disciple, third-gen child of God, these identity markers should be way more important than whatever secular terms are being thrown out at you. May it be true of you that your identity in Jesus Christ and the gift that he gave you of parents, grandparents, great-great-grandparents, or whatever you find yourself at this point of your Christian life, overwhelmingly grateful of the steadfast love of the Lord that passes down for thousands of generations meaning some of you know quite well because you're a first gen Christian that you have inherited from your family all kinds of evil all kinds of baggage and weight But praise God that those curses and those sins do not persist forever. Some of you are precisely in this room because you did not come in to a Christian family when you were born and you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ some point along the line as a teenager, as a college student, later on in your adult life. And if that's you, please be encouraged that you are part of God's process of fulfilling his promise and his plan to change the direction of your family history. So think deeply about this question. What is your generation? And how much control did you have to be born with the parents, grandparents, great-great-grandparents? Should this meditation of this question lead many of us to overwhelming gratitude, regardless of what the answer is? especially for those of you that are first-gen Christians, praise God that there is a change happening in my family and that now my children and maybe grandchildren can experience something other than perpetual alcoholism, drug abuse, or you name it. So many families are in this room, and they're first-gen, they're second-gen, they're third-gen. Christians, believers in God, now, as I use this phrase and describe it in this way, I would like to be clear that as a church, we do not believe that you become a Christian by the family that you are born in. We believe that you are, as this passage will make very clear, you are taught the gospel. And then you, through your repentance and faith and obedience, will pass that on. But it's not assumed just because your parents, mom and dad, grandma and grandpa are Christians, that you grew up going to church, that you are necessarily a Christian. As the former well-known preacher Billy Graham would say, just because you're in a garage doesn't make you a car. Just because you're in church today doesn't make you a Christian. Just because mom and dad are Christian kids, this song is for you, children. It does not necessarily mean just because your mom and dad believe in Jesus and have brought you to church that you have new heart, a changed, repentant life. So I think each one of you, from the youngest in the room to the oldest, should spend time today thinking through, where are you? Are you passing on what your parents in this room have given you faithfully? Are you the first generation of Christians in your family and you are expecting to be like the people that have had 10 to 20 generations of Christians passing down truth and love and you're comparing yourself with others and feeling like how come my family's not as godly as that family perhaps it's partially something you could not control so why beat yourself up over the fact that you are the first of what might be several baton passes of great covenant faithfulness from God from your family to your children to their children. And what a gift it would be to say as you look back at your ancestry, not to see which country you come from or family of origin, but your spiritual ancestry and say, by God's grace, he has redeemed me out of the pit of hell. He has rescued me from all of the earthly pains and sorrows that come with choosing sin and sin alone. And he has already turned several in my family to repentance and faith. As one professor says in the opening day of his freshman class, how many of you have a belly button? And the point that as these 18-year-old students come into their first week of class thinking they are hot stuff, they know everything, he wants them to acknowledge that you came into this earth because of someone else. You are dependent on mom and dad. You will forever have on your stomach a reminder that you are not independent alone. You are not self-isolated from the rest of the world. You're part of a tradition, a family, a generation. So to illustrate this question, as we think about these words in verse 4 and verses 5 and 6, look again at Asaph's words, We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds in his might and the wonders he has done. And then again, 5 and 6, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. Notice, Father to children so that then the next generation might know and that the children that aren't even yet born, so now we're grandchildren, and then even those after that will arise and tell to their great, great grandchildren. We got like four to five different generations of people passing on the wonders and works of God in our text. Where are you? I want you to look at this photo and I wanna know, does anyone know what the name of this building is? Anyone? It's in Germany. Any takers? Any audience participation? The name of the building behind me. The, I, I couldn't quite hear that, but it's the Cologne Cathedral in Germany. Now, a lot of these buildings might look the same, and it's a picture that's probably not the best or whatever. But why, why show this picture? Because it began being built in the year 1248, 1248, and it finished being built, and even though part of that reason was there was a halt, it finished being built 1880, 1248, 1880, 632 years after the first turn of the shovel in the groundbreaking ceremony, generations came and went and never saw the ribbon cutting ceremony. I want you to answer the question this way. What is your purpose as a person, as a Christian? There's lots of ways to answer it, but perhaps we're being told it's to be a baton passer. It's to be a cathedral builder because we know that physical cathedrals are not the place where the Holy Spirit dwells. It is the people of God, the family of God, the individuals that are taking the gospel, teaching it to their children, them receiving it, believing it, being baptized, passing on to their children. So many of us want massive, great things in our individual life. But could you imagine being one of those builders in the early years And your entire lifetime is dedicated to just being a faithful builder of something that you will never see the completion of. Parents, this often is what your work is like. The grind of parenting will feel like, did we get anything accomplished today? I don't think so. I feel completely unproductive. I feel like we maybe took 10 steps backwards. Use this image. And be reminded that the completion of God's church and his people will be patient skill of individuals who know that we will not right away see all of the fruit of our labors. Or let's take this not just individually for parents. Let's take this to Embassy Church. We're almost at our 10-year anniversary from our very first meeting in a living room in the suburbs. Now, many of you already know this, but we have never been published in some kind of magazine article about the fastest-growing, greatest church, up-and-coming pastor, woo Never, it's never happened. For many church planters, men like myself that are trying to start a new work, there's all kinds of good, godly desires to see a church grow, increase in numbers, budget size, good things. There's also a very wicked, evil desire that's basically more about the American definition of success and that my value as a pastor and our value as a church is determined by how many people sit here today. I say, no. May that never be true of me. And if we were to maybe just slightly adjust the question, maybe how big is your church, Pastor Phil, in terms of are you successful? Because that is a question I get asked quite regularly by other pastors. My neighbor just recently asked me, so how big is the church? You guys doing well? Are you healthy? And I knew what he was trying to ask. Are you bigger this year than you were last year? Instead, I would like to insert based on Psalm 78, How long will your church pass on the gospel from generation to generation until the coming of Jesus? Isn't that a a much better question? How, How likely is it that after you retire, Pastor Phil, will the church continue to exist for not just decades, but generations? What if rather than being the fastest growing church, we become the longest existing church that's ever been in America? I'm not necessarily saying that's a great thing to brag about either. I'm just trying to give you a compare and contrast. For us to take the Bible and say, what does the Bible determine as our job and our success as a church collectively? I propose to us that as we're getting closer and closer to that 10-year mark, that we not think, look how great God has been these last 10 years, as wonderful as we should think, but we should also fuel that for thousands of generations or come Lord Jesus and may it just be next year that you return either way do we have a anybody thinking amen to that so I want to ask us to think what is not only the generation of you as an individual but I want you to think what is the generation that we are in at Embassy Church and I think we're in our first generation we're 10 years old but I want to pray and ask each of you to broaden your horizons and think what if your part to play as a member, tender contributor, is just to be another one of those guys building. You'll never know the name of most of those people that build that cathedral, but did you know that today, the most visited site in all of Germany is that Cologne Cathedral? How much more glorious is the redeemed church of Jesus Christ than a building that will one day fade? How much more valuable is it to invest in the kingdom of God and store up treasures in heaven and lose all of yourself to the glorious goal of just being someone that takes the baton in the factory? Think like factory worker. What's what's a disciple? What's a member of embassy? A factory worker. Gospel is received. Gospel is handed off. Did my part. faithful so let's consider as we close out this sermon two more questions as it relates to what we do to be faithful so we can know whether or not we are being faithful and why we do it question two what is it that we want to teach the next generation let's look at our text and just get the answer straight from the text i think there's five of them that jump off the page look at verse four we will not hide them from their children but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord. God's glorious deeds is answer number one. His might is answer number two. His wonders that he has done is answer number three. His testimony that he has established is answer number five. His Torah, that's the word law in verse five. And there you go. What, what is it that we're receiving and what is it that we're passing on? And this is true for whether you are a grandparent great-grandparent on the far end of the line and the older saints among us, or you're a child and you're the very youngest person in the room. You should be thinking right now, what is it that I should be receiving from the Bible? How can we summarize what it is and what is it that I'm supposed to be passing on? And the answer is God. God's glory, the glory of what he has done, to put it another way, I would love for each of you to have this conversation, and parents, perhaps you let your kids answer first. Ask them sincerely, maybe dinner tonight. What do you think the most important lesson you've learned about the Bible or Christianity has been from whether it be Embassy Church or whether it be the teaching of the home? What is the most important idea, lesson, Kids, what you want to say, parents, what you want your kids to say is something about what God has done, or very simply, the most important lesson from the Bible is that God has saved us. Full transparency. When I was a kid, my parents, I think, did a great job telling me the gospel. I remember being a teenager and being asked this question and I remember saying the most important thing in all of the Bible is what Jesus said love the Lord your God with all your heart mind soul and strength love your neighbor as yourself and I now as a pastor think not because any fault to my parents I think that was incorrect love is a command love is very 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 important but Jesus is not summarizing the most important thing in the Bible he's summarizing the most important command in the Bible Commands are not the most important thing in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15 says it as black and white and as plain as day as you could make it. Brothers, let me remind you, the thing that is of first and foremost importance, Christ Jesus has died for our sins. He has been buried. He was raised on the third day, and he has ascended into heaven and poured out the Holy Spirit. Paul, nowhere in his description of what is of first importance, lists any commandments, not even love. He says the most important thing that the Bible says is Jesus has done it. It's finished. Therefore, in our understanding, if we are being faithful to take what the Bible is offering, may it be true of us that if we were to ask our kids, whether it's today and we've already kind of cheated and told them the answer, or it's a month from now, a year from now, kids, what's the most important takeaway from the Bible? Drill it in their head. Even if they're not fully believing in their heart, may they know, may you be faithful to tell them it is about what God has done for you in the person of Jesus Christ. That is, will be the thing that will make anything else the Bible has to offer, commands, wisdom, obedience, how to live, possible. If you flipped the script, you will make Pharisees in your house. You will make a bunch of kids that are trying to obey the rules, but they have zero ability because they don't have the power that's being driven and and, and, and forced into their life through hope and love from God first. He pours love into us through what he's done, therefore, We can live out the way of love, which I think is the great way to read this text of Scripture. And that's why it brings us to our third question. Why do we teach the next generation? Notice the four answers listed in Psalm 78, 7, and 8. And notice the way that they unfold. We teach the next generation. Why? So that. What's the purpose? What's the end goal? Why do I want to disciple my children and bring them to church? Why? So that they would set their hope in God. So they would not forget the works of God. So they would have hope in the gospel. So they will never forget that the primary message that God has sent is Jesus Christ in flesh. That should never, ever, ever be forgotten. It's part of why even in a short abbreviated service, we are not skipping the Lord's Supper. We do not wanna forget that he has died in our place. But also, notice that the next two answers are, we teach the next generation so that they will keep God's commandments and not be like their sinful fathers. Stubborn, rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The big idea. Is that the sins of our fathers are many, but the mercy of God the Father is more. I just want to briefly share that I am privileged to be at least third, fourth generation. I have grandparents that went to church. My parents were faithful Christians. I told someone the other day, I have been in church, barring sickness or some sort of event, every single Sunday for the entire existence of my life. Every year, without fail, my parents brought me to church, and since then I've been going to church. I don't take that for granted. And so, what I want to just briefly do as we close here is to just let you know that one of the sweetest moments I had with my mom before she passed was talking about Exodus 34. And it was just so encouraging because we were meditating on the very point we started the sermon with. I was reading Exodus 34. And my mom was battling leukemia, and she, almost two years ago, passed away. But there we are, the woman that led me to faith in Christ. I was encouraging her, Mom, how good is it that no matter how many sins you or Dad or Grandma and Grandpa There's hope that from generation to generation, it's like I'm taking the baton that you gave me and I'm looking and I'm observing all the good that you have given me, especially the good of the gospel, the good of faithful church attendance. But there's the hope that I can pass on, hopefully even greater good, from learning from your failures too. Because the very thing we're going to learn in Psalm 78 is that the fathers failed. And so as we come back next week, I want to just leave you with that idea is that there is both the passing down of the stories of God's salvation, parents do it, but there's also the children looking at the failures of their parents, and parents, this requires you to be humble and willing to confess your sin and make it clear, yeah, I failed too. And that kind of environment, I believe, can allow us to be honest about our failings, teach our children not just the gospel, but hope that as you pass on to them, they will take it further than you could have. You've you've got a certain range within just your your limitations, your DNA, your abilities. Be faithful with what God's given you right in front of you and just know that you can have some kids that are going to add to the cathedral of God's glorious church. And what a great thing that would be even if you're not the greatest mom and dad in the world. You were faithful with what you had. And that faithfulness God will use in this grand tapestry of the work he is doing from generation to generation. So brothers and sisters of Embassy Church, I hope that you will be able to place yourself appropriately and wisely in the stage of discipleship in your generation of history of families. Collectively, Embassy Church, I hope we will understand where we're at in these first 10 years and where we wanna be. And it's not just the fastest growing, best, biggest church in the world. It's hopefully the most faithful with what we had. The most faithful with enduring from generation to generation. How how good would it be for us to be the fastest, biggest church and then 10 years from now it's gone? How about healthy and lasting? And finally, any of you here, if you come from a very broken family and you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the sins from the father to their children. To the third and fourth generation is not a curse that you will inherit for the rest of your life it's a promise of hope that it will one day end could be you today today could be the day for you to hear this and say i don't have any christians in my immediate family extended family and i've never heard the gospel till now well then please consider you being the agent of change for the rest of your family's history for the sake of you your soul your children your children's children, and the children yet unborn who will then rise up and tell their children. It's a free gift of salvation, not a list of works that God's commanding, even the greatest work of all, love. Receive first the free gift of grace because he died for you on the cross, taking away all of your sins and all of your failures, whichever ones you've personally contributed to and whichever ones you've inherited from mom and dad. His mercy is more. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in the name of your son Jesus, we want to now bow our heads before you and thank you for sending the Holy Spirit into the world to rescue sinners from generational sin and curses of passing on all kinds of vices and and problems. And we want to pray that there would be just a continued pursuit of faithfulness in each one of our lives. Some of us are learning the Bible for the very first time and didn't have parents from the moment we could start reading, reading the scriptures to us. And Lord, I just pray that they would learn to just accept that you have sovereignly placed them at that point. Give them just the humility to accept that that's good, that's wonderful, it's glorious, and there's an opportunity for encouraging others and passing on the gospel, whether in the church, whether they're married or not or in their own individual families if they are married and have the privilege of children. Oh Lord, we want to just pray and ask that you would kindly help each one of us to not think only about ourselves, but we would broaden our horizons and think, this story of the gospel is so big, it's so grand, it's beyond us. And whatever little part we play in the story, help us to just be so in awe and enamored that we have a seat at the table May we have that kind of spirit now as we take the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name, amen.